Welcome to AutoLine this week, where we're going to be talking about all things Nissan, because my guest on today's show is Carla Bailo, the Senior Vice President for Research and Development for Nissan Americas, and great having you on the show, Carla. Thank you. Great to be here. Also joining us today are Brent Snavely from the Detroit Free Press and Lindsey Brook from Automotive Engineering International. Great having the two of you here as well. Thanks, John. Thanks. Great to be here. Carla, we see uh, a lot of change amongst the top Japanese automakers right now. Uh, what with the, the earthquake and the tsunami and the strength of the yen, it, it, it's really been walloped. One of the things that we see coming out of that is a lot of work, especially engineering R&D work, being moved to the United States. Is that happening with Nissan as well? Absolutely, it's happening with Nissan. Um, First of all, we've always been progressive in having the work done in the market where where the products are being built and, and where the products are being developed. But even more so now than before, based on the things that we learned from the experience with the earthquake and the tsunami, that really we need to have all parts of the product made locally, and we need to have the, the quick, rapid turnover or turnaround to be able to supply the parts from our local markets to keep our manufacturing running. So of course, we learned a lot from there. Everything that we resourced or changed sourcing, we've kept local. But in addition to that, with the impact of the yen, with coming with that is more and more production being shifted into the Americas or into the whole hemisphere here, that we need to do the work where the customer base is so that we're face front to the customer. We're making sure the vehicle is meeting the requirements of, the, of all the markets that uh, we're designing and developing for. I know Nissan has developed uh, truck-based products in the U.S. Will it do passenger cars as well? One of the reasons I ask is when Toyota just unveiled the new redesign of the Avalon, it mentioned that all the, uh, the styling, design, engineering, and manufacturing will be done in the U.S. the first time it's ever done that with a passenger car. Mm-hmm. Actually, the first car that we ever did here was the Altima, the original Jelly Bean Altima from 1993, if you remember that one. And um, so we've always done that from the beginning. And of course, then we did our own uh, Xterra, the first launch of that. And then our focus primarily has been on trucks, but we have kept the Altima throughout its life doing what we call case three development, meaning we have full upper body development from the very beginning. We've kept that, and of course, more and more products are coming, and especially the new products that we're looking at designing and developing are the crossovers, which are the hot segments, the small and the mid-size crossovers. And Carla, can your group show a, um, a, a cost advantage to the company in terms of you know, the dollar-yen relationship, and you're, you're kind of a low-cost R&D operation here, I would imagine. Well, lower cost. It's lower cost R&D, and especially when you use what I call our blended rate, or what we use is our blended rate, because Nissan uh, R&D Americas comprises not only the facilities here in the U.S., but we also have a large facility in Mexico and also a facility in Brazil. So we take as much work as we can with our Mexican operations so that then our overall blended rate, yes, is much more uh, competitive than, than what's happening in Japan or some other HCC type uh, countries. Blended meaning North America in general. Our whole right. hemisphere mm-hmm. cost, if you look at all of the different areas that we develop the product. 
Carla, the, the last time we talked, uh, we were at your technical center in Farmington Hills. So I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit about the presence that Nissan has in Southeast Michigan and your plans to hire more engineers. And I'm also wondering how that's going because uh, I think it's good news, but it, I think you'll be facing some competition. Uh, Toyota announced last week they want to hire 150 engineers in Ann Arbor. Hyundai is adding positions in Superior Township, mm -hmm. and I'm hearing from suppliers that they have been uh, scouring uh, to, to hire more engineers as well in Michigan. Right, and if you look at any of the, the websites, LinkedIn or any university website, you can just see tons of people looking for good qualified engineers. So yes, we are expanding. We're getting more and more work coming in. Um, our presence in Southeast Michigan uh, quite frankly, isn't as high as I would like it to be. And our name isn't as well known. You know, as, I, as I mentioned, when people come to our place, they're surprised to see what we do there, um, the scope of our operation, how many people are there. We have a thousand people working just in Farmington Hills. Um, but our name isn't out into the society. You don't see it in the papers often. So I'm trying to change that. You know, Nissan is a good place to work. We're growing, we're expanding. We'll be doing uh, much more development, advanced technology development. And yes, we're faced with the competition. Now, s the smart thing to do is, of course, to make sure that what we're offering uh, for a talented engineer is a better package. So we're watching what the others are doing and trying to stay with that. But also, I'm talking directly with Toyota, talking directly with some of our competitors to mainly see how we can better improve the talent pool in this area of the country. We lost a lot of good talent when we had the crisis a few years ago, the Lehman shock. And the amount of people entering engineering and then the amount that we're getting to come into the automotive business and retaining in the automotive business isn't what it needs to be to support all the open positions. So what can we better do by collaborating to show, hey, the automotive business, it's a hot place to work. We got great stuff happening. And, you know, please, you know, stay in southeastern Michigan. That, along with getting more involved in what's happening in the community and uh, making that kind of community spirit, because I think people want to come work at a place that's involved in the community and where it's a nice environment to, to live, to work, to raise a family. Are you finding that you have to recruit out of outside of Michigan and or outside of the auto industry to find the engineers you're looking for? We're opening the door um, because in certain commodities, in certain specialties, um, we're having a hard time attracting talent or we're all looking for that talent. So yeah, we need to go outside. And what we've learned from some of our employees is there are a lot of people in other areas of the country that really have a desire to work in the automotive industry, but we don't go there. So maybe we do need to spend more time going to, you know, one of the guys I heard from was from the University of Utah. Mm. I would have never thought this is a place where there's automotive enthusiasts, but he said there's many. And of course, we recruit in those areas where we have offices around the Sacramento area, Stanford area, um, Phoenix, around our proving grounds at uh, Arizona State. And of course, our headquarters is in Tennessee. There's uh, Tennessee Tech. There's many good opportunities but we're even expanding beyond those regions now to be able to get the talent. 
the only area in the country right now where there's actually more engineers than jobs, from my understanding, is in the southeast. Hmm. So we're opening our door. We need to look at it in you know the areas around Georgia and Atlanta, et cetera, to start to see if we can bring them in. Um, going outside of people with within the automotive industry, probably the most we do that right now is with new grads to bring them in, get them used to the way Nissan does business, grow them up in our company. It's, it's usually best. Sometimes we may bring somebody in from outside of the automotive industry if, if, if the situation is right. For example, fuel cell development, we need people out of the chemical industry to come in and, and try to you know, improve the, the chemical reactions. That's very interesting. I, d I didn't realize that you did fuel cell development in the United States for Nissan. What is the, the core that you see for Nissan R&D in the Americas? We have greatly been expanding over the years. We started initially just mainly doing upper body development, and usually it's what we call localization or you know, copy and pasting from Japan. We'll make the same car and we'll build it here. After we started that, then we did the full upper body development. Everything from the, from the platform up is ours from the very beginning. Lately, though, we are expanding even more into the advanced technologies. So we now have an EV research team, both here in Farmington Hills and we have a, an affiliated office in Sacramento. In Farmington, we do the research. In Sacramento, they actually go out and put the miles on the cars and further enhance you know, the capabilities. So in Sacramento, they did all of the tuning for the, the new hybrid on the M, for example. Also in Farmington, we have a, a full fuel cell laboratory, which has about six PhDs working full time. And you'll have to come see it sometimes. It's, very, it's not a very big room, but the equipment is amazing. And, uh, you know, they're looking to see what they can do to just improve the reaction and improve the efficiencies, you know, even by minimal amounts. Um, so that work is being done in Farmington. Also, this year we'll be opening a new advanced research center in the Silicon Valley, which will be focused on a lot of autonomous driving. Um, working, you know, with companies like Google, working with the Stanford Car Project, etc. I wanted to get back to engineering for a moment uh, from that last question. Uh, we've seen, I think uh, the colleagues here would agree, a uh, fairly dramatic increase in the number of female engineers that we see at here in the Detroit area at GM and Ford, I think to a lesser degree Chrysler. It's my, still my impression that female engineers are fairly rare in the Japanese industry. Uh, and, and, you know, when you visit, uh, when you go to product launches, you go to R&D centers, you still see them fulfilling kind of traditional office assistant roles, serving tea, that kind of thing. Mm. It's fairly rare you go to a, a product launch and, and meet a Japanese female engineer. What is the status of, of engineering as it pertains to females, Carla, in Nissan and your perception within the Japanese industry? And how is that changing? It's, it's changing by evolution. Um, when I first started in the company, which was over 20 years ago, there were very few females in general in the industry. And of course now uh, the female population isn't nearly what it needs to be considering 60% of car buying decisions are, are females' uh, decision. 
So now we're probably in the 20 to 30 percent, and people projected that to grow, but we seem to be quite stagnant in terms of, you know, that percentage. This is overall industry. Overall industry. Uh Within uh, Japan, we still have a, if you go to our technical center, it's probably about 15 to 20 percent female. We would never know this. You wouldn't know it because (laughs) typically they're not in in the higher positions. And one of the, the things that I did when I worked in Japan for five years and I continue to do every time I go back is to meet with these high potential female engineers and talk about the things that need to change or the enablers that we need to be able you know, to say the Japanese women can move up. In Japan, especially in Japan, the days are very long. Part of, part of your commitment to the company is viewed as your amount of face time. And so women are really struggling with, and we have the same problem here, really struggling with how to raise and balance a family and, and your work life, uh, how, to, how to draw the limits and you know, how, to, how to manage everything well. Plus, in Japan, women have the added burden of being the ones who have to get up at four o'clock in the morning and make a hot breakfast every morning with eight or nine courses for their family. This is before they can even come into the office. And the added competition at lunchtime, all the kids' bento boxes, everybody looks at everybody else's. And if your mom you know, didn't cut it perfectly, then the other moms try to train her what to do. It's very, everything in Japan is very competitive and you either do it the best or you just stay home. So they really struggle with how to do this. And sometimes I feel, even though they're very competent, it's almost self-limiting. So what, what we're talking about is how can we unlock that? How can we make the environment such that it's not how much time you're in the office, it's what you deliver. That's what's important. They need to balance it and work when they can, not you know from 8 in the morning or 9 in the morning till 10 at night. But they need to get home, spend time at home, and, you know, balance everything well. So they're always asking me, how did you do it? Because I'm a mom of four. How did you manage to do it? And I give them as many secrets as I can. But that's from an American perspective. It's different. The, the, the constraints and the expectations are different in Japan. Are, are the Japanese academic and professional cultures, which are very male-centric, feeding females through, you know, high potential, great math skills, great science skills, feeding them into engineering and automotive engineering, or is there still work to be done there? I think there's still work to be done, but not only in Japan, but here. I think we have a lot of girls here that are capable in math and science, but for some reason we're not leading them into engineering. We're leading them into medical fields, or we're leading them into research or biomechanics. But, you know, how many women do we really nurture? Gee, you really want to go work on cars, don't you? That's exciting. Um, in fact, when I was going into the business, all of, I remember well, all of my mother's friends said, why do you want to do that? That's dirty. That's dirty. You have to look under the hoods of cars. Well, I like cars, you know. But anyway, it's this perception. But I think globally we need to think about how we can get women excited about cars and excited about a, a, a career in engineering. Um, it's, it's something I've started to work on with Kettering, my alma mater, something I've started working on with, with U of M as well. Mm. 
for those of us who are in the industry, we love it. We need to get out. We need to talk to these young girls, try to guide them and help them into, you know, seeing that engineering is really a very broad, great career and can lead to really good things down the road. Last week at the New York Auto Show, um, Carlos Ghosn was at a lot of places, and everywhere he went, he was asked about his, uh, his thinking on electric vehicles. Um, so I was wondering if you can talk about um, the LEAF, where you see it going, and you'll be pr starting to produce, produce it in the U.S. soon in Tennessee. Sure. How will that help availability and sales? Well, our sales target is our sales target, and I, I, I don't really want to talk about that. But obviously, making the, the batteries first here in the U.S. and then making the product here will make it automatically more affordable. Um, it will obviously help with the availability because we were constrained. Um, it, it shouldn't change our sales target because the growth of the EV is going to be according to the customer demand and the market situation. So no matter you know, what, what we do, besides bringing the cost down and making the economic equation better, you know, we, we can't say we're very bullish still on EVs. It's, it's a major platform of the company. How rapidly do you think we'll see costs of electric vehicles uh, go down over the next couple of years? It's really, it's really anyone's guess, right? Um, you know, the key is going to be obviously in getting the, the battery packs more efficient, um, being able to increase the range. There are a number of elements that go into how, you know, how we can bring the price down. It's going to be one of the key drivers to success, though, because people are people are always going to do the the mathematics, and if the equation doesn't make sense over the life of the vehicle, I think you have a limited population of just I don't want to use the word tree huggers, but environmentalists that are going to just buy it because it's green. Carla, I'm fascinated by Nissan's tie-up with Renault. So many joint ventures in this industry really have gone nowhere, and yet that one works. Do you get involved with Renault, and, and how has this thing worked where others have not? In, in the U.S., we aren't so involved with Renault. In my five years in Japan, I was deeply involved with Renault. And the interesting thing is the Japanese culture and the French culture are very different, extremely different. So there's no way that you could take these two companies and expect either one to become the other. And I think this is one of the, the, the ways, the reasons that we've survived like we have is we haven't tried to change the culture of the other. Each company stands alone. Each company has a strong competitive business plan. We've continued, though, to look for the win-win synergies with not one company saying they're better, therefore you do it our way, but let's go slow, let's find the synergies, let's make sure it's going to work before we just jump into the next, the next move. So, you know, one of the first things we did was obviously the purchasing synergies, and that's, that's reaped great benefits. Um, gradually, we've moved into some synergies in powertrains. Renault has some great small diesels. We've got the great gasoline engines. And uh, then also now looking more into platform, common platforms and elements on a global basis to, again, increase the global scale. You've got a architecture strategy called C CMF? CFM? Yes, CMF. Common family module, right? 
How does that work within um, both Nissan Japan, Nissan, Nissan North America, and the Renault family in commonizing vehicles you've got in the pipeline? Yeah, this is this is the first time actually that we've been able to achieve this kind of you know common structure, and there are still certain elements that will be unique because Renault vehicles have their own flavor, Nissan vehicles have their own flavor, and it will be applied you know to sedans and hatchbacks alike. So what it what it has done for us is. Obviously, it increases the economies of scale. So no matter where we build it, we can do more common sourcing. Mm. Um, it also let us take the best of each company's individual platforms and bring them together to have the best performance from cost and weight and obviously the dynamic uh, attributes. You were just at the New York Auto Show last week. It was a big week for Nissan. Can you talk a little bit about you know, what, what the company's goals were and how you felt the show went for Nissan as you introduced the new taxi, uh, the Altima, and an, a new Infiniti model. For us, it was actually one of the greatest events of the year because Altima is our signature car. And we've been building up, building up the, the introduction of that product. So obviously it was the, one of the biggest shows of the year for us. And Altima seemed to be extremely well received. Um, Obviously, the technology items that we put in there in terms of the suspension with the multi-link in, in, the, in the rear and the increased, uh, the improvement of the bushings, plus, you know, the rear camera and its ability to do everything from lane departure warning, understeer uh, control, all of those elements seem to resonate very well um, with the people who saw the product and with the, with the media who were there. Um, the, the overall styling, obviously, and perceived quality has, has come up significantly uh, from where we are with the current generation. Um, it's a product that's maintained its, its cost uh, price for the customer, but also, you know, we announced a 38 MPG, so it's, it's, it's becoming dynamically a better product, aesthetically a better product. Then, of course, the, the highlight or the talk of the town was the New York taxi, and those you know, billboards were all over. And having Mayor Bloomberg and, and Carlos Ghosn give comments and, and introduce that product was an amazing event. And uh, everyone I saw come out of the product uh, at that event had a smile. And I remember when we were doing the same kind of work with the leaf, we said everyone coming out of the leaf has the, has the leaf smile. So we were saying the same thing. Everyone coming out of the, the taxi has the taxi smile. Carla, I'm uh, intrigued by how quickly Nissan reacted to the earthquake and the tsunami a year ago in Japan. Reacted far more quickly than Toyota and Honda did. We're, we're getting down to the end here, but can you give us some of your insight as why Nissan was able to deal with this crisis more effectively or certainly more quickly than the others? My very simple answer right away is we are a company really good in crisis mode. We've been in crisis mode for a number for a number of reasons over the years. We were in crisis mode before we joined in partnership with Renault when we had the we were nearing bankruptcy quite frankly and that put us in crisis mode then we were in crisis mode to get out of our deep debt. And we're continually in crisis mode. So when we get into a crisis situation, we don't sit and study what we need to do. We know what we need to do. We start moving. 
So immediately the right people were put together. They were in a crisis committee. They never left the room. Uh, the engineers got automatically, you know, taking a look at what are the parts we're going to run out of first. And teams were deployed globally wherever they needed to go to find alternate uh, suppliers on a worldwide basis. We had people flying everywhere. And then, of course, in the U.S., we were concerned about the availability to get the parts. So we had people flying into Japan days after the earthquake when everybody else was evacuating out so that we could start working and, and making sure that we were going to keep our plants running. So it was that kind of let's just go do and, and let's make things happen attitude that Nissan has um, that I really think allowed us to, to over, overcome you know, and, and, and react very quickly to what was happening. Um, I don't know if you had the opportunity to hear the Iwaki plant story by the plant manager and how quickly that team, within hours after the earthquake, when they could get back into the plant, started to assess the damage, started to fix it, set up cots. Everybody that was working in that plant never left that plant till it was running again. And they provided, you know, they slept there, they did everything there till it got moving and there was the other earthquake which cracked everything again and they had to start over. The other thing that the company does very well is the continual support, moral support for the staff. We're going to do this, we can do it, we have, the, we have the wherewithal to manage it. It just keeps everyone engaged and moving forward. Well, I think you ought to capture that in a handbook or something <laughs> because to me it was very impressive to see how quickly Nissan reacted to it. And, you know, Toyota and Honda are no slouches either, but you guys really got off the out of the blocks a whole lot more quickly than they did. <laughs> anyway, we've got to wrap this up. It's been fascinating listening to you talking all about these various things that we've been throwing at you. But Carla Bela, thanks so much for coming on AutoLine this week. It's been terrific having you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And Brent and Lindsay, really want to thank you guys for having come on too. Thanks, uh, it's all made it a very good discussion. I want to thank all of you for having tuned in and. Make no mistake about it, we'll be right back here next week talking about all things automotive on Autoline this week.